Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. So, a very busy programme ahead of us here again on Mooney Goes Wild tonight. Very shortly, we'll be heading over to Germany to a place called Burghausen. It's the home of the longest castle in the world at over 1.2 kilometres. Can you imagine a castle stretching over 1.2 kilometres? Anyway, Niall Hatch is there and he's going to be talking to us about a project to train northern bald ibis, which became extinct in that part of Europe over 400 years ago, to retrace their tracks. They're teaching them a migratory path across the Alps. Have you ever been there, Richard Collins in Malahide? No, I haven't been there, but I have seen that ibis... Abroad, yes, in fact. There's a colony of those in Dublin Zoo, Waldrop ibises. Correct. Very interesting animal. And ibises in general are extremely interesting. They are a great cultural animal, of course. These were the top god of ancient Egypt. Um, was ibis. The it top like god? The, the, the Egyptians believed that when the sun went under the earth... It passed along beneath the earth and mm-hmm. came up next day, if you were lucky. And the, the god Toth, who was also the god of writing, controlled the world. And he, he kind of consoled people. He looked like the new moon. His bill was like the, the curvature of the new moon. So they thought this, uh, this is a god and it is the god that protects us when the sun... So they is. actually use the image of the ibis. They did, and if you go to Egypt to the temples, it's a wonderful thing to do. I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful place to go. You will see ibis heads everywhere. Oh, really? Oh, my goodness, Top, I didn't know Top that. a very important god because he, he, he conveyed reassurance, do you see? So that was the thing. He looks like a bit like a curlew, um, but he's not actually released to curlew at all. Anyway, why are we talking about it when we could be chatting with the man who's actually on location in Germany as we speak? Niall Hatch, just exactly where are you? I said you're in... Berghausen, but where exactly is that? Well, Derek, would you believe I'm standing outside the walls of a medieval castle here in Bavaria? Indeed. In Berghausen. Uh, it's the longest castle in the world, indeed. It's a very impressive site. Um, but the main reason I'm here, it's not because of the building itself. It's because of a wonderful bird and a great conservation project to bring a species back from the brink of extinction. So I'm very thrilled to be here in, in Berghausen. But it's just across the river, literally metres away from Austria. So the best views of the castle are Austri- actually from Austria, <laughs> looking back across. Now what are you doing there? <laughs> Why aren't you in Austria? <laughs> well, because it's here in in Germany where the birds are actually reared in captivity a beautiful bird called the bald ibis and it's a species that was on the brink of extinction and thanks to really concerted efforts by conservationists including here in Berghausen uh, the species has been saved and it's uh, recovering very very well and a lost European species has been brought back which I'm thrilled about Can you describe what the bird looks like now? So if you saw a bald ibis in flight from a distance it might look like almost any other bird a large black bird uh, flying along with big broad wings but up close you'd see they actually have bald heads like Myself, and a, a, a sort of a, a collar of shaggy feathers coming off the back of their necks and around their heads. So quite a bizarre looking bird and they also have a big long down curved beak, a bit like that of a curlew. Uh, so similar sort of effect but the bird looks nothing like a curlew apart from the shape of the beak. It's a black sort of glossy bird with a bald pink head. I'm told that if you see them from a distance on the ground you might mistake them for vultures. Yes, they do have a very vulture-like appearance. Uh, so from a distance you would see, you would think that, yes, they have that bare skin on the head. Uh, different beak completely so as a, whereas a vulture would have a short hooked beak, these ibis have this big long down curved beak they have long legs and uh, they're sort of related to the to the herons and that group of birds not, not exactly the same family but closely related to them now they have them in dublin zoo they do that's a great place to see them actually there's a display in dublin zoo where they have them in this special habitat and that's part of the captive breeding efforts for this bird because it went so low that actually there's just one small wild population left in morocco uh, and that was really the only birds left surviving so it's important that some of these birds have been bred in captivity mm-hmm. so they can then be reintroduced elsewhere as has happened here in Burghausen. and there are migratory species. Yeah, in many parts of their range there are. So the ones in Morocco stay where they are year-round. They're near Agadir. It's nice and warm for them there all year. But historically, the populations that we used to have here in, in the Alps, in uh, in Germany and other parts of Central Europe, uh, they would migrate and they would head down south towards the Mediterranean region, because obviously it gets quite cold here in the mountains in the winter. Uh, but of course what happened was that those birds, when that population uh, became extinct and was wiped out, so did that memory of the migration route. So what's happened is the birds that have been reintroduced to Germany have to be taught how to migrate great again. So it's all about how you get these birds to really revert to a natural behaviour when they've been 
bred in captivity originally and even then the parents that are raising the chicks here they haven't learned how to migrate themselves mm. it's strange they have to be taught it but that's that work that's how you save them from being here in the cold winter now this is something myself and richard saw in washington some years ago when they were training the trumpeter swans to fly from canada into north america so when they're training them to fly there, how do they do it? Do they use microlights? Well, they started using microlights, but would you believe they actually flew a bit too fast for the birds to get them over the Alps? So they had to change to something called a paraplane, which flies at a slower speed. It can go on a less direct route, more naturally mimicking the flight patterns of these birds. And the idea is to get them safely over the Alps and actually down to Tuscany, which is where they spend their winter. So there was a lot of trial and error involved. Yes, nobody had done anything like this before with this species, so it's really trying to work it out for the first time. And then, of course, the information they get from that will inform reintroduction projects of this species elsewhere but also other birds as well there's new techniques being learned all the time so to put this again to summarise it all this is a bird that has been extinct for something like 400 years in Europe so they take the eggs from the birds that are in captivity and then they raise them and they bring them up with their well when we saw them in Canada they were swan moms but these would be foster moms yes if you want them to follow somebody who is uh, who's teaching them how to migrate they have to learn to follow that person they have to have a connection with that person because what would happen with these migratory birds in the wild is normally they would follow their parents so mm. they need a a foster parent, even if that's a human, to show them show them the ropes, show them how to move. Uh, and it's really about re-establishing those migratory routes. The species, as you said, Derek, has been extinct in Europe for roughly 400 years. It was a feature of the Alps here. Uh, so it's great, finally, to have it back. And, and long may it continue. There's also reintroduction projects going on elsewhere in, in Austria, in parts of Spain as well. Uh, and uh, and then hopefully the, the species can be brought back to the Middle East. Where and this is EU-funded, I believe. Yes, EU-funding stream. It's a really good the way the European Union do fund these projects. I think about 5 million euros spent well. on it, which is it's a lot of money. It is, but it's well worth it if you think of bringing back a species. It's also bringing employment into local areas. It's helping to bring other species back too because the techniques being learned from this means that future projects for other birds can benefit from that trial and error and so they'll be cheaper in the long run. So I think it's a win-win. Anyway, you're in Berghausen, as you said, on the border with Austria. You are not alone, Niall. Who are you with? I'm with Corina here, who is um, part of the project here to bring these beautiful birds, the bald ibis, uh, back and uh, really delighted to be here. Uh, so thanks so much for speaking to me, Corina. Tell me um, a bit more about the ibis. What are the challenges in trying to bring a species like this back? You're welcome. Yes, uh, what's the challenge? The challenge is, of course, that uh, we want to reintroduce a migratory population. I mean, that's uh, not that easy. So as you told before, we need to hand rear them and we need to teach them to follow us by microlight. Um, I mean, that's uh, a lot of training which we have to do and um, but this actually works really good now but still we have of course some problems um, when the birds are on migration when they migrate by themselves like there's the illegal hunting in Italy and also we have a lot of losses to electrocution on power poles but we still have a growing population so um, it's it's a lot of work but it's worth to do it. (laughs) And how many birds do you have now in the population here in, in Bavaria? Uh, we have now about uh, 50 birds. Not all of them are adults, so they uh, they stay in the Tuscany at the moment and they will maybe come back in one or two years. And, and is teaching them to migrate, is that working? Have they learned the routes to follow themselves now? Are they doing it by themselves? Yes, it's working. Um, we also have uh, wild birds, uh, which means that they were reared by the own parents, you know, and um, so it's, it's growing all the time and uh, yes, it's growing slowly but it's it's working so these were birds that actually were raised in captivity taught the migration route learned the migration route and then they bred successfully themselves so there's first generation bald ibis now that are actually making that migration themselves and you mentioned tuscany so they're going from bavaria from where you are there in berghausen to tuscany is that it that's their wintering grounds where they feed yes exactly so the wintering ground is the Tuscany, and we already have the third generation of wild birds. Not, oh. not the first. Wow. Yeah, it's, well, that's, it's that's really good. good. That's that's really really good. Yes. Um, I see here. We're looking up at these, I guess, nesting ledges that you have. These lovely wooden structures. I see that you have cameras around it. It's actually like a fortress. It seems very secure. You have to protect these birds from lots of threats. I see you have some barbed wire underneath the nest. Is that to stop predators climbing up and getting the chicks? Yes, exactly. But uh, the cameras is not for uh, secure them or protecting them. It's just that we can have a look inside the nest so we can see how many eggs they lay and how the chicks are growing if everything is okay. And how many eggs does a female bald ibis lay? Usually it's between three and four. But sometimes we have five eggs. (laughs) But this is really a lot. And is it normal that all of those chicks would survive or do some some tend to die before they, they fledge? 
it depends on the year. Uh, so in some years, all the fledged, no, all the hatched chicks fledge, but in some years, um, it's maybe only two or three which uh, can survive. And with the project, how long will it continue for? And ultimately, how many birds do you want to have back in the population before you could consider that it's a success and that your job has been done? This new life project goes until 2028, and um, the the number of birds when we want to have in the end is um, 357. Then the population should be self-sustainable. But the 357 is not only for Bockhausen, it's for the total population, like uh, seven breeding areas. Oh, well, I wish you the very best of luck with that. I think it's really important mm. to see this kind of work being done, and it's really exciting, and I'm looking forward to these birds returning. When will they come back here to Bavaria? Uh, they will come back next year, okay. so in the, in the spring. I must be nervous watching to see how many of them actually make it, because, as you said, there are threats on migration from, from illegal hunting, from the weather, I suppose, maybe lack of feeding. It must, be, it must be nice when you see these birds finally coming back and you realise that they've made it and they know what to do. Yes, of course. I mean... Uh, most of them uh, were GPS trackers, oh. so I can see where they go and so I can watch them the whole year. And when they go to their wintering grounds in Italy, do they stay in one particular area or are they starting to move and explore new areas themselves? Uh, most of them stay in the area, but we have some birds which shorten the migration route, like um, they don't go the whole way. So they just found some places where they can stay the winter and they stay there. So it's, it's natural behaviour is being, being restored. So they're choosing then what's best for them as a, as a wild bird population should. Yes, yes. Well, but I suppose really, Niall, you should explain exactly why birds do migrate. Well, essentially birds migrate, of course, because it's, it's to make sure essentially they can find food and obviously escape bad weather as well. So I'm guessing here in Bavaria in the winter it must get pretty cold. It's pretty chilly today, I have to say. But it must get even colder than this. So for a bird like a bald ibis, I suppose you want to have them somewhere where it's warmer and more secure for the winter and then they return back here to the safety of the mountains to nest. Well, what are they feeding on? They eat worms, insects, everything they find in the ground. So that's also the reason why they have to migrate, because in winter the ground is frozen and they cannot find any food then. So they use that long curved beak to probe into exactly. the soil. Exactly, yeah. Ah, yes, it yeah. all makes sense. So just like the curlew? So just, just like the curlew, it's kind of like almost like wading birds. We have lots of those in Ireland, so people will be yeah. familiar with those birds that probe down deep into the ground. So the ibises, yeah. although they're not related, they do the same thing. It's very interesting. Yeah, true. Yeah. Well, it's a fantastic project now. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you, Karina. You're welcome. Yeah, it was very interesting. Yeah, lovely. D- delighted to be here and to see real conservation, like hands-on work like this firsthand. And also to see that it's, it's reaping dividends. It really is working. This is how you bring species back. It takes a lot of work from dedicated people like Karina and, her, and the team here. Um, but it's worth it. It really is. And, and, and I heard you mention security cameras, Niall. I'm just thinking probably we could uh, hack into them and stream this live next year for the breeding season. When will that be exactly? They return in the spring and then they breed during the summer, the summer months. So we've got the perfect time to watch them. I'm sure the weather here will be lovely. Can you imagine the views from the Bavarian Alps at that time of year? It's going to be stunning. Okay, now thank you very much indeed. And thanks again, Karina. You're welcome. <laughs> thanks very much, Derek. No problem, Niall. You're welcome. And thanks again to Karina. More details, as always, on the website rte.ie forward slash Mooney. By the way, when you go there, you'll find information about Birdwatch Ireland's Garden Bird Survey. It kicks off this day week, next Monday, the 28th of November. Details on how you can participate on our website, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. And we'll discuss it in more detail with Niall next Monday when he's back. All right, time to catch up with our reporter and biologist, Terry Flanagan. Now, Terry, when I heard your report this week was about banks, I thought it was about Banksy, but apparently not. It's about banks for seeds, not the type of bank you find on the main street, is it? Uh, Not quite, Derek. This is a bank where seeds are deposited. And it's not in the main street, but it's in Glasnevin, in the National Botanic Gardens. Now, every bank, Terence, has a bank manager. Who is the manager of this particular seed bank? Well, the man in charge here is Dr. Colin Kelleher, and he hopes to be working on this for the next 10 years or so. And in terms of the number of seeds, what are we talking about? You won't believe me, but by my reckoning, there's going to be at least 80 million seeds. That's a huge number of seeds, isn't it? 80 million seeds? We don't have that many plant species on the island. No, we've about 1,200 plant species, but what they're hoping to do is to take samples with up to 10,000 seeds per sample. So when you do the maths, it works out at about 80 million seeds. And what's the purpose of this, Terry? 
To conserve these seeds in case there's a catastrophe somewhere along the lines, imagine there was an earthquake or a volcano or something like that, and all the plant species from a particular area were lost, well then we would have a reserve for them and we could use these. Fantastic idea. How do they store them? Well, that's what the report's all about, Eric, so you're going to have to listen. Can't wait. Here we are. So this is Terry Flanagan at the National Botanic Gardens speaking with Dr. Colin Callagher, who's in charge of this National Seed Bank project. Here we go. I've been in this room before with Matthew. Oh, yeah. This is where you store lots and lots of your plants. They're all dead, of course. Exactly. This is the herbarium. So this is the National Herbarium. We have about 600,000 dried specimens in here. And what I'm looking at here now is a table, a very large table, and it's full of seeds. I've never seen so many seeds in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, yeah, I suppose there are loads in even the small amounts uh, small packets you can have thousands of seeds yeah. you know, which is now great. these seeds here they're not the normal seeds I was expecting to see I'll be honest yeah. first thing I thought I'd see would be conkers or maybe acorns I don't see any acorns or conkers in fact all of the seeds are very very small yeah so in terms of conkers and acorns they would be one of the species that we don't put into the seed bank. And there's a reason for that, because basically they can't survive the freezing process. So they would basically crack open and just not be viable. So the seeds that you're seeing, like you're saying, are these nice small seeds. Uh, some of them be a little bit bigger, uh, like the yellow rattle be a little bit bigger. But they would be seeds that can be dried down and frozen. Now, yellow rattle is a plant that a lot of people might not know of. It's a beautiful plant, often grown in meadows. Tell us a little bit about it. It's a semi-parasitic plant. So what it does is it actually puts out these little sort of roots that go into the roots of grasses and they extract nutrients essentially from the grasses. So they're great. Why people are using them a lot now is uh, they're great for basically keeping grasses back in a meadow so that you have more broadleaf herbs really rather than the grasses. Now this is a, I'm going to call it a dirty sample because I can see lots of bits of soil and chaff and everything on it. What are you going to do with this? So what we do with that then is we clean it up. We put it into a, a mini treasure in a way. Mm, so I see you have it here. Yeah, so it's actually uh, modified. There's, uh, I've got great advice from the guys in Back Weston, uh, the Department of Agriculture. They have a, a crop wild relative seed bank. So we, we learned a lot from them uh, to begin with. And they have this little um, it's like treasure. Little, it's like a little whisk, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. It, it is. Plastic it's, container. it's modified whisk, yeah. Mm. And so then we will take the seed... And, or, and, and, as you say, all the sort of chaff and all the, the rubbish, as it were, put it into that. And then we will whisk this. And that will separate out all the chaff. So you, you go through a few times to separate it out. And then we will just take out the seed. And you'll see that basically... You can see it's already separated yeah, out, so yeah. the chaff is separated. And even, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to blow it now, but if you blow on it, you will see the chaff rising. So yeah. you, can, you can use air, a lot of air, to just blow and get rid of the chaff and leave the seed. The seed will be that much heavier, you know. And it's very dry. Absolutely, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so as soon as the seed comes in, we dry it. So we will put it into, uh, at the moment we're using silica gel. So it's like the beads that you have in uh, electrical equipment. And we'll dry it down to about 15 degrees relative humidity. It's really, really dry. Apart from the actual seeds, are you storing anything else? I'm thinking of, say, bulbs, as in daffodil bulbs or corms or rhizomes, things like that. Uh, Not yet, but we do intend to have uh, what's called an in vitro collection. And that would be for things like oak or hazelnuts, so things that cannot be frozen. But no, to begin with, we're focusing on the seeds. That's our our main target. So what you're doing is you're leading this project here. This project is, it's the setting up of a national seed bank. And it's the first time I think it's ever been done in Ireland, is it? There would be other seed banks. So there's a threatened seed bank in Trinity College. Mm -hmm. And there's a seed bank of crop relatives in the Department of Ag. There's also the Irish Seed Savers. Exactly, exactly. And so what they do, though, is the, the one in Trinity is threatened species. The one in Back Weston would be for relatives of crops and the one obviously in the seed savers is for heritage crops. So this is for everything. 
Now, the, probably the most famous seed bank is in Svalbard. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Exactly. I've always had difficulty pronouncing that word, but it's up in Norway. And that has huge numbers of seeds, but they're mostly from crops. Exactly, they are. So, in fact, some of the uh, material from back Western would have gone up to Svalbard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people have branded it the Doomsday Vault. It's essentially a store of crop genetic diversity. So all these uh, species are put in there and held on storage. The idea is that they're not to be gone back to. So they're, they're not going to go at them ever. Now, there have been a few exceptions where they've gone, gone and sort of taken seed out of them. But the general idea is, no, you put it in there and leave it there for, you know, it, 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 I think they even... Until have, it's ever needed. Exactly. Mm. Now, what you said earlier on is that you're collecting seed from all plants what if I was to say, are you collecting the seeds of weeds? Well, we love weeds. <laughs> so, of course, we're collecting weeds. Uh, yeah, definitely. Now, I'm looking at all these samples here. They're all bagged and they're coming from different parts of the country. That particular one is coming from, from Waterford. I see others coming from Kilkenny. I see others coming from this one from... From Wicklow. From yeah. Wicklow, yeah, yeah, as well. So you've got various samples. How many do you hope to get in total? In total, we're talking about, uh, I'm, I'm rounding it up to about 8,000 collections. And how many seeds from each species? Ideally, you collect about 10,000 per species. Wow, so you're it's talking about millions and millions yeah. of seeds. Yeah. It, it, and, and what's going to happen with them then? Once you have them cleaned, just like what you've done here now. So a key thing as well, after we, we clean it and we, we're processing it, is we test its germination. So you see here, I have, so it's like, um, like a fan in a way. You, right. You've got a, a sort of a, a fan of paper and basically it's, uh, I've sort of added water just for moisture and we put the seeds in the little uh, troughs yeah, of the fan. Slots, yeah. yeah. And so then we're, we're testing its germination. So you basically put in about, say, 10 seeds from each sample. From each sample. Yeah, and I can check see it. some of them there. Exactly. This looks like a grass or exactly. something. Exactly, it is. It's actually rye. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you have them cleaned yeah. and you know then that they're, they're fertile. Yeah. And you're going to save them for, first of all, how long do you intend to save them here for? Forever. Forever, essentially like, uh, yeah. but, but how long would they be viable for that we don't know for sure but we will be testing every 10 years so you would go in and test and this is a standard practice how so we t- check the germination oh so yeah, you yeah. take a small number again exactly. to see if they're still germinating exactly yeah yeah so we'll test germination rates after the 10 years and so that'll be a continual process as we collect more seed as well the same so we'll have a cycle of testing when I watch television and I'm looking at programs like the Australian Border Guards and all that, the one thing they talk about is biosecurity mm-hmm. and bringing in plants and bringing in seed from one country to another. Is there a worry that there will be a, a spread of these plants from one country to another and will it cause damage? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We already have plenty of uh, invasive species. A classic example of biosecurity or potentially lack of it, was the ash dieback. Mm. So that is plants coming into Ireland and bringing in a disease and wiping out our ash population. And how can you make sure that that won't happen here in the Botanic Gardens? In terms of the seed bank, uh, what we're doing is we're drying everything down. So once you dry it down to that 15 degrees, very few things will survive it. And if we do have issues with fungal pests or something, we will treat it if needs be. We're not going down that line at the beginning, but we will do it. If you have a critical species we need to save, we will use some sort of fungicide. How important is it to have a national seed bank rather than one or two around the country? Well, I would think it's important to have both. Replication is really important in seed banks. And this is as set up by the, the gold standard, which would be the Millennium Seed Bank in Kew. So they collect all wild species all across the world and then they're encouraging partners and we will be one of their partners to collect in their own country as well so we're collaborating with trinity college and with the seed savers and with uh, back western department of ag to develop these collections so replication is good as i said it's it's good to have a duplicate if our freezers go down you know or or, or go up in, in temperature that could be an issue. So we have to have backups. Now, we do have a backup in terms of we have multiple freezers, but, you know, it would be good to have a replicate elsewhere as well. 
this must be a very busy time of the year for you late autumn because that's when the seeds are about so how are you collecting them are there others are there organizations schools or that are they helping you or is it just the general public sending in seeds to you uh, it's not the general public at all because we want to be sure of it being collected properly and been verified and identified correctly and all. So we tend to have ourselves going out, so trained botanists, but we also have some uh, consultants who are doing this as part of their work. They're, they'd be on site and they're willing to pay back in a way. Mm-hmm. And we're hoping to set up a network. Now it's in its infancy at the moment, but we will set up a network of collectors. Yeah, because it seems very labour-intensive having to go out to 8,000 sites and collect maybe 10,000 seeds from each. I was thinking maybe of schools, the likes of transition years. Is there a way in which they could be incorporated into helping? There would be if they were trained properly. We can accept seed in, but we need to be sure that it's verified correctly. You know, so that that's a really important thing that we can't just get if people were to send in a packet of seed. Do we know that it's absolutely mm-hmm. from uh, the location that they say or is it from their back garden or whatever? So we need to be a little bit careful on it. So if this yellow rattling now, is, is, it's ready to go into the freezer. Absolutely. So key thing then is that we have all the data of where it was collected, the date it was collected, how many plants it was collected from. The number of seeds so we we have weighed the seed to check uh, how many seeds it is and then we count we count about 50 weigh them and then weigh the lot of it and divide it in mm-hmm. to find out Estimated, how many yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah we just put that in uh, into the into our um, packets and then we seal that in an aluminium foil and then that will go into the freezer so when we're ready we just and it's all sealed into the aluminium foil In it goes to the freezer, and that's it for 100 years. It's labour-intensive then, and presumably it's very, very costly. So is it money well spent? It's not very costly at all. The freezers are not very costly. The the labour, yes, would be, but that's where, as a national entity, and OPW as a national entity is taking this on, it committed in 2019 to set up the seed bank in the Botanic Gardens, so we're putting resources of people into it. So it would be labour intensive for sure. But in terms of consumable costs, it's not very expensive at all. So what you have here in the Botanic Gardens is really a Noah's Ark for plants. Most people, when they come to the gardens, they want to see the flowers outside. They want to see the trees. They want to smell those beautiful plants as well. But what you have in here is a collection really for the future. Exactly, it is. And the, the key thing about this is that it's viable seed for the future it might look dead you know you're looking at these seeds and they are dormant but it is a viable sort of collection so basically we can restore these species uh, in future if it came to that or it or even not ju- not just restoring but just growing them for educational purposes or for our displays here so in 10 years time 20 years 30 years time these freezers behind me they'll still be working away and they'll still have their seeds Absolutely, they will. And we will, I would think by 10 years time, we should have most of the seed collected for the, the um, just about 1,200 native species. And another thing then that we're moving on to after the seed would be bryophytes, so mosses and liverworts. They're going to be a little bit more tricky and it's not a seed bank. They don't have seeds, but that would be the next step. Once we have the seeds collected, We'll be moving on to more difficult things, really. Then you'll have your ferns, your theridophytes, yep. you'll have your lichen. So yeah. you'll be at this for a long time. Absolutely, absolutely. It, it is a lot of work. It's a lot of collecting. But I see it as fairly feasible. But yes, the rest of it will take many, many more years. How long do you think these seeds will last for? Because you dry them down and then freeze them, we should get 100 years out of them. That's the target, but sure, nobody has tested that yet. But there have been seeds discovered in glaciers mm. that have... Uh, and you also know, a couple of the old tombs. Exactly. And so the key, again, if you think of those, these exceptional occurrences, they tend to be in extremes. So basically in frozen states, and it would be dry frozen, not wet frozen. And then in, uh, as you say, in the tombs, that'll be very dry. So... Basically, you have a dormancy, an enforced dormancy of the seed, 
and then it can release that dormancy if it's given the right conditions and potentially produce a full plant. So in theory, you could actually keep seeds here for hundreds, if not a thousand years. That would be the goal or the plan to begin with. But who knows, in 20 years time, there may be new technologies that we don't need freezers or we, you know, we send them. I don't, I don't know what we'll be doing with them. But yes, in our time frame now, yes, we'd be thinking about 100 years to hold these seeds. Thank you, Colin and Terry. Go to the website if you want more details, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, Durer's rhinoceros is the common name for a woodcut by German painter and printmaker Albrecht Dürer, perhaps the most important artist of the Renaissance outside of Italy. The image of the rhinoceros was inspired by a written description of an Indian rhino that had arrived in Lisbon in 1515. And although Dürer never actually saw the rhino himself, he understood the value and appeal of this exotic curiosity, and so he created between four and 5,000 prints of the animal as affordable art objects for a growing collector base. Dr Thomas Eser is an art historian and director of the Dürer Museum in Nuremberg in Germany, where Dürer lived and worked. He explained to me how important it was for Dürer, who was a very commercial artist at that time, to protect his work, and in particular his monogram, A.D. Albrecht Dürer. Dürer was not the very first to use a monogram on a piece of no. art, but... Dürer was the very first that used it always. Even his earliest etchings and engravings and woodcuts, this monogram was added to so that after some years, uh, European collectors did immediately know this is Dürer made. And this is something he made, yeah, it's kind of marketing, very modern form of marketing. He was the very first one that did this very consequently always when he makes a print. It's important for the value of his prints. Mm -hmm. A seller didn't know it's by Dürer. Mm -hmm. And on the other side, in Venice, for instance, there had been uh, faking uh, artists that used his prints and his uh, images not only to copy them, but also they put it the AD on that. And that, of course, was a criminal act. Not to use it, that would be nowadays so, that copyright is also on content, not only on the, the signature. But in Dürer's time, the signature was the criminal act to imitate that. So he went to court to protect his monogram. Yes, he even uh, found the emperor that gave him a privilege that made it for him sure that he was the exclusive one to use the AD. Also a very modern uh, legislative process. So although people could copy his print and make copies of that and sell them, they couldn't put the AD on it, which signified that this was done by Albrecht Dürer. This is the point. And there we are in European history and a very important point of changing. People started to be interested in who made it, not in was it good made, is it good, is it very expensive or cheap. No, the question of authenticity, who is the author, started to arise. Now, as I said, while Dürer never actually saw the rhinoceros, he did, however, go to great lengths to closely observe other great curiosities of his time. One such adventure began after he had heard rumours of a beached whale in Zealand off the Netherlands. This fascinating story is documented in a book by author Philip Hoare entitled Albert and the Whale. Recently, myself and Richard got an opportunity to speak with Philip Hoare at the Chester Beatty Museum in Dublin. And he's a very interesting man, is he not, Richard? Yes, Derek. Philip is Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Southampton. Mm -hmm. Now, he's written 11 non-fiction books, and one of them is called Albert and the Whale, and it won the 2009 Samuel Johnson Prize for Non-Fiction. The book was about Durer's journey to Antwerp from Nuremberg in the hope of seeing the carcass of a whale that he heard was beached there. Now Philip, like Durer, is a man of many parts and he has two great interests from childhood, Durer and whales. He is indeed a man who straddles the great divide between the sciences and the arts. A fascinating man to talk to, Derek, I think. Indeed.
I am born in Southampton, brought up there, educated in London, but my, my early career was all about punk rock. I managed bands and I worked for an indie record label and released records and got very excited all about that. And then I realised I wasn't very good at doing that, um, I was losing lots of um, money and things. And uh, so I became a writer. Uh, started out writing for magazines and newspapers, Guardian and... Um, Harpers and Queen, but um, yes, and then I began to write biography. People like Noah Coward wrote a, wrote a study of Oscar Wilde. Um, early interest in Ireland, I'm Irish descent. My great-grandfather was born in the Strawberry Beds here and a big family um, there. I, I had this kind of Damascene conversion to, to the sea when I was in London after my rock and roll career had sort of faltered into the gutter and I wasn't looking up at the stars, I was looking at the DHSS. I, I'd never learnt to swim, although I was born and brought up in Southampton, right by the sea, I can hear the sea from my house and you know the foghorns and the seagulls. I really was so scared of the sea. So I started going to a swimming pool in inner city London, really sort of Cray Twins territory, you know, this very strange terracotta building uh, which was a sunken pool and, uh, and, I, and, I, uh, and, and I sort of tried to teach myself to swim which is very very difficult if you are really scared of the water and this woman she was a water goddess she was literally sent from, from some watery kingdom to claim me for her own because she saw what I was doing she was aged about certainly in her 80s and uh, she saw that I was just floundering about and she just took me on and she did all the things that my PE masters had never done it's just like, You've got to just make friends with the water, put your face in the water, mm. break this sort of liminal membrane, you know, this thing, this barrier of fear. And I suddenly realised that I wasn't going to die and that I could let the water bear me up. And I started just, from then on, I swam every day. I've swum at the 40 foot twice today already. I started at six o'clock this morning. I've just come back from it again now. Oh my goodness. Um, so I really love outdoor swimming, you know. Um, I, hate, I hate the phrase wild swimming. There's only one wild swimmer, and that's Oscar, and he was a great swimmer, and he did swim at the 40-foot drop. But um, so I, I, I think, you know, I don't like the idea of the commodification of swimming. It needs to be, you, know, you shouldn't have to go and buy loads of gear to be able to get in the water. But anyway, the connection for me between that and where we are now is the whale, because a very early object of, of, of obsession for me was the whale. And I was growing up in the late 60s, early 70s, when the Save the Whale campaigns were beginning. And I persuaded my father to drive us to um, an oceanarium in Windsor Safari Park. Oh. It's now Legoland. And uh, they had a captive orca there. They had. I was brought there on a school trip and I touched it as it happens. Never. I reached out to have a photograph no. wearing a horrible blue jacket, me reaching in and touching no. and feeling the skin of the oh whale, which was extraordinary. Really like a wetsuit, but it was oh, yeah, in a it. tiny pool, a I tiny enclosure. It. Horrible. Well, that, like the woman in the pool in Hackney, the, that whale was, again, a sort of a, a real mechanism for change for me because when I saw this captive orca, his name was Ramu. Okay. Um, and he, he was in that. It's just an overgrown concrete pool, That's wasn't it? Was, just, yeah. just terrible, terrible thing. Yeah. You know, it could never go vertical. You know, like killer whales often spy hop, you know, and this whale could never go vertical. In its own. And of course, it had no social culture at all. Seeing that what, what was done to that whale just completely changed my relationship to the natural world and, and the way we manipulate it and, and abuse it. Um, and in fact, I couldn't actually even address the notion of the whale after that. I felt so weighed down with this kind of collective guilt, you know. Um, so it wasn't until the year 2000 when I went to Cape Cod, I'd gone out of a book tour, I'd published a book about I think it was my biography of Noel Coward. Anyway, I was in America. I went to Cape Cod to visit a friend in the very typical Cape Cod province town, which is an old fishing mm. and whaling port. And, and I, didn't I feel like I've been stalking you. I was there too. No. <laughs> Not the same time, clearly. So, but you will know, actually, that it is... It's one of probably the best places in the world to see whales in the it's wild. It's beautiful, yeah. And it is a very beautiful, yeah. exquisite... It's basically just a sandbank, a great curling um, arm held out into the Atlantic. And, but I didn't realise there were whales there. I, mm. I went out on this whale watch thinking, well, this is going to be a kind of circus, you know, they kind of throwing flounder to the whales or something to like get them to perform like Ramu. And, of course, 
I was standing on the prow of this boat as within half an hour of going out from the port from Provincetown, this 40-ton, 40-foot humpback whale breached right in front of me, this halo of sea spray around it, like this barnacled angel with the biggest flippers, the pectoral flippers in the, in the, in the natural world. It's just as though someone had pressed a pause button on, 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 on the video, you know. And that whale was looking at me. I could see its eye. So there was this kind of connection. And once that happens to you, you, you can't, be the same again really um for me it's that's why i'm you know now however many years 22 years later i'm still writing about whales still chasing them i'm totally obsessed i'm, I'm a whale head one of my friends called me a whale stalker <laughs> <laughs> so i am i am i am very obsessed with whales and is there one particular species I can't really say that in public because it will annoy the other whales, but between you and me, it's, it's sperm whales. Why? Because they've got the biggest brain on the planet. They have got a, a culture which I have felt. I've been in the water many times with sperm whales, and um, they are truly an organised cultural species whose communication, which is cultural and, and is vocalised in a series of clicks which are organized in series of coders, like, uh, like Morse code. When you are in the water with them, because they're actually, their ears, their sense of sort of traditional hearing, most they feel through their bodies, they feel, feel through their bones, the, uh, the sound is conducted through their jaws to, to their eardrums. So they feel one another through sound. So their communication, their culture, their sense of being is to do with physical connection through the water, which is really interesting because the, the, their culture, obviously they can't express themselves with fingers and hands and things like that, and they don't speak, obviously, in the way we do. And they, uh, So it, it, it's this sense that you are very aware when you're in the water with them. It's like whale internet. You know, it's like they're permanently locked into a kind of whale system of, of, of communication which is deeply expressive of their culture, of a matrilineal culture, you know, this is a, these are, most whales are matriarchal in, in, in social arrangements and sperm whales, the, the whale that you and I drew when we were kids, mm. the big square Moby Dick with a little eye and it's kind of crazy when you see them and that's what they do look like. So there's something very anthropomorphic about them because they almost look as though they're smiling and they have this little eye and they look sort of... But then they're deeply strange. They're antediluvian creatures. They're almost science fiction, you know. And they change shape and colour. Actually, they physically change shape to dive in the water. They draw their forehead. They've got this great big blunt forehead, you know, a very pugilistic square forehead. But when they dive, they can draw it in to a kind of wedge shape. So what looks sort of not very hydrodynamic at all becomes a, a great sort of like a plane, like a like a wedge, and they dive down. And that's actually happening. That's not just the refraction of the water looking no, no, in, that, playing they, tricks they with your eye, no? No, no, it's drawing it in. Also, their rib cages collapse because they don't, they're not breathing down there. Obviously, they're storing their oxygen in their, in their blood. I recorded a sperm whale in the Azores down for an hour and 47 minutes. And they can be down two miles in depth, you know. The reason why they are also really enigmatic and these storied creatures from Moby Dick to whatever is because almost all of their lives is lived in the deep, dark, sunless, you know, the benthic depths of the ocean. So there's, you know, there's only maybe 20% of the time that they spend at the surface. They are so remote from us. They are so remote from our conception. We can talk more about astrobiology than we can talk about sperm whale culture in a way because it's just so difficult to study them. You know, it's very difficult to tag them. The tags come off. You know, we don't, we don't really know what they're doing. Obviously, they're feeding. It's still difficult to know how they feed. You know, we know that I have seen, I have seen sperm whales zapping very large fish with their sonar. The, the, the clicks can, can ramp up to like high decibels. It's the loudest sound produced by an animal in the world. And it acts as kind of stun gun. And I saw in, in New Zealand, Kaikoura in the South Island of New Zealand, a big sperm whale, male sperm whale, and they're really big, zapping this fish. And you could see it didn't have to touch the fish. It's like a ray gun or something, you know. So 
And could you hear that? Were you recording the sound at the same time so no, you could we identify were, this was actually no, happening? We were at the surface, so we couldn't hear the clicks. We couldn't okay. hear what was happening. It's probably a good job we weren't, because it was probably very loud. When I dived with sperm whales off the Azores, I had to sign a, a waiver with the Azorean government saying I wouldn't bring any action for any damage done to my hearing by the whales. They're very, very loud. They're very loud. Um, I've been echolocated by them, you know, and you feel it moving through your body like a scanner, like an MRI scanner. And they're creating a, a three-dimensional picture of you in their heads. So they are feeling you. Mm. They're feeling you through their heads. We know the dolphins can tell whether a human female is pregnant before she knows she's pregnant. So they have this kind of extra sense, this sixth sense of apprehension and comprehension. You've got me wondering now how a dolphin reacts when it comes across a pregnant woman who doesn't know she is pregnant. <laughs> Does it do backflips? What does it do well, to indicate uh, this fact? It's sort of, it, unfortunately, because dolphins are kept captive, we've been able to do very detailed experiments on right. them. And they do, do t control experiments with females who aren't pregnant, females who are pregnant. And, and, but, but they must behave in a certain way, do uh, they? Oh, I, yeah, they, will, they will indicate. They will poke, poke at the stomach. Oh, oh, yeah, no, I, they do that a lot. They, uh, uh, yeah, they, I mean... Dolphins are obviously very intelligent animals too. Now you're a fan of Moby Dick, Richard. I am indeed, Herman Melville, and mm. that's going back a long way now. I, but I begin to understand from Philip now why he has become fascinated with Durer, because Durer did what you did long ago, back in 1520. He went in search of a whale, just as you did, a beached whale in the Netherlands. And he travelled from Nuremberg all the way to the coast. Okay, the plague was around. There were other benefits from going, shall we say. But would you develop it for us a bit? Well, you're so right to say that, Richard, because... Actually, the way I was drawn into Jura is when I was in Cape Cod and I was... Melville mentions Jura two or three times in Moby Dick. He calls him this Dutch savage. I don't know why he called the when he was being Dutch. I don't know. Um, and he spoke about his scrimshaw. Um, the scrimshaw the sailors were doing, they kept, kept scratched on, on whale's teeth and bones as being like Jura engravings. quite interesting. But, um, and it was when I was in... New England, in Boston, actually, in the Museum of Fine Arts, they had a display of Dura engravings, um, especially um, they had the, 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 the sort of Bible parables that he would engrave, but lots of those involved animals. And I could see this guy was drawing an animal in a totally unmedieval way, in a, in a very accurate way. So I started to become really interested, and then I learned a story that you've just told us about how he tried to see this whale. And it just seemed to me like a, you know, a version of Ahab pursuing the white whale, Moby Dick. And because there's a similarly fatal end <laughs> uh, for both. Yeah, poor, poor old because he got a disease of some mysterious kind as a result, they say, of that visit. Did he really? I think it's quite clear he, he felt he did. The great reason why we can talk about Dura at all in any sort of degree of accuracy or depth is that he wrote a very detailed journal of that journey from Nuremberg to to the Netherlands, uh, and he talks about after he tried to go to Zeeland, which is a, a, a it was a, it's, it's actually a malarial region of Zeeland um, at that point, right? Uh, right uh, and 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 that he he seems now to us to exhibited the symptoms of, of malaria, of mm. what they used to call intermittent fever, does it? Because it comes and goes, doesn't it? I think malaria, and he did die uh, eight years later. But whether or not it was definitely of malaria, but he certainly attributed it to that. Mm. Well, he, like yourself, was a Renaissance man in the famous phrase with so many talents in all kinds of ways. I can see why you would be drawn to him because you have such a wide range, creative writing professor and so forth. And this knowledge of whales, despite that, that's a long way from creative writing. I've met a lot of whale experts, but none of them could write at all well. I shouldn't say that. Some of them would be deeply insulted. But anyway, what was Dürer like? He was very aware that he had this extraordinary talent. I have this sort of story that I've sort of built up, and I, I can't prove it, but I know certain elements that are true, that when he set out from Nuremberg for the Netherlands, he had to apply for a passport through the Holy Roman Empire. And he went to, it was a, a prince-bishop in, in Bamberg, a neighbouring city to Nuremberg. And so that's where he went to start his mission. A fellow guest at the castle was Dr Faustus. So oh there's quite, it's quite likely they met, and this is magical realist answer to your question in a way, is that I have this 
something that may be like Faustus. Mm -hmm. He made a kind of Mephistophelian contract with whoever, with God or the devil, in his, the way he drew nature. I mean, he'd been drawing about nature before that, but there's this, he has what to me, when I saw, when I started to explore Jura's work, and luckily I was writing the book or researching the book before all the lockdowns of, of, of COVID came into place. I was able to go to Madrid, Munich, Nuremberg, Paris, Amsterdam, and see Jura's works in the flesh. And these works, like the, the painting of the hair, which is probably one of the most famous drawings he made. It was a painting, but it, it looks as though it's drawing. It was painted actually with a single hair brush, you know, that single hairs of the hair. They, they actually can't be moved now. From That's in the Albertina in, in Vienna. They're such fragile objects. When you see that there's a sort of communion there, which is very similar to the communion I had with the whale. When you look at the eye of the hair that Dürer drew, you see that he's painted the window of the kitchen in which the hare is sitting. And as the curator of the Abertina said to me, the next moment the hare was probably in the pot for lunch. So it rather, rather demystifies the romantic description I'm applying to it. But Dürer painted animals for their own sake. They weren't allegories, they weren't religious allegories, they weren't exaggerations of some... They weren't anthropomorphic at all. They were absolutely real with the exception, perhaps, of the rhinoceros, which is his other famous engraving, because he never actually saw a rhinoceros. He only had reports of one that had landed at Lisbon in 1515. But he drew the rhinoceros, which until, practically until David Attenborough came along, that was how we believed rhinoceroses looked like. It's actually this great cratered, fissured, interplanetary being. It's almost like a kind of cyborg, this thing that he draws. But it's a beautiful abstraction, almost, of a, of a rhinoceros. Go back to the hair and the eye and the two white lines going down. Is that not, um, is there not a metaphysical element of this? Is he not connected? Why would, if you were painting a hair, representing it as in the wild, you certainly wouldn't put a reflection of the windows of a room into the eye. Now, we see, is it a reference to a church window? Or is, is he connecting that hair to us in some kind of metaphysical sense, do you think? I think that's a really, really interesting... That's the first time anyone said that to me, really. I, I think it's quite possible. The hair has, con has con connotations of the Virgin Mary, we know, so there are religious uh, uh, elements of that. I think, obviously, there are things which she builds into those. But, you know, the thing is, that hair was never for sale. Uh, there, was never, there wasn't a commercial reason to do it. He was a person of faith, but of course he was going through the Reformation, you know. I mean, he, he knew Martin Luther and Erasmus. So it's difficult to know what he thought and believed. He was very interested in the humanists of, of the Renaissance, you know. And so he'd been to Italy, he'd been exposed to a lot of that sort of way of thinking, which isn't excluding Christianity, but I'm not sure what he thought to that degree. I just think that he knew he had this incredible talent. He really knew that. And he had is a very technical talent in a way it's very german you know it's a german take on italian renaissance art in a way you know it's very accurate it's Vosbrung durk technique really you know it's it's very much like that he is so modern there's something very hard-edged about him and realistic which is it's very visible. You can go and look at a Jura. You can go in this building now, Chesterby, to go and look at an engraving by Jura, and you will connect. No one has to come and explain what that th that's about. No one has to give you an essay about it. You don't have to go to a, you know, art college to understand it. You understand what he's doing there. That is amazing. 500 years later, we're standing in front of Jura here in the middle of Dublin, and we can say, yeah, I know what he's talking about. I recognise that animal. I recognise that state of being. Philip, I have interviewed lots of people, but I must say, talking to you has been extraordinary. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Richard. You've been a, a wonderful interrogator. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much indeed, Richard and Philip Hoare. That's pretty much all we have time for tonight. Thanks also to Niall Hatch, our broadcast coordinator, Jarlath Holland, and our researcher, John Bell O'Reilly. We'll do it all again next week. Until then, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. <laughs> Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney.